and welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. Today I'm joined by Lily Shockney, who is a professor of surgery at Johns Hopkins University, and Janie Metzger, who's a clinical coordinator of the Kuhn Center for Advanced Breast Cancer at St. Luke's Hospital. Thank you both so much for being here today. Well, good to see you. Yeah, I'm excited that we uh, have this opportunity. I know you're going to be telling us today about the metastatic breast cancer retreats that you started and that you run, so I'm excited to learn more about these. Well, let me give the background on how these ended up being developed. Um, in 2001, I launched breast cancer survivor retreats that were two days, one overnight stay for patients who had completed their treatment in the last two years, but were having trouble emotionally re-engaging in their life in a healthy way. So these were women that were examining their breasts every morning in the shower. Any ache or pain, they were convinced they had metastatic disease. And it didn't even matter what stage they had. Even women with stage zero in situ disease were just as panicked and frightened as those with stage 3C who did have very high risk for local, regional, and distant recurrence. In 2005, I got an email from a woman <clears throat> saying, I see you have survivor retreats and that you open them up to anyone in the country to attend. I can't find the dates for when you are holding stage four metastatic breast cancer retreats. So when is my retreat? And I just stared at my computer screen like, oh, oh. And so I wrote her back and said, we haven't launched any at this point in time. Tell me what you would expect if I did have such a retreat. So she gave me a pretty good laundry list. Uh, I took it further though and uh, developed a focus group with eight metastatic patients and said, if we were to take you away somewhere, um, how long would you want to be away? What would your expectations be that you would come home having achieved, having learned, having experienced? Would you want to be by yourself? Would you want to bring your spouse or partner? Would you want to bring uh, a, uh, a female caregiver if you're not in a romantic relationship? So, you know, educate me. And the agenda was literally created by that focus group. And we haven't altered that since, and I started them in 2006. So they're three days and two nights in length. And uh, uh, we've always limited to 12 patients and their accompanying family caregiver. Um, I hold two a year. One is for couples. Uh, the other is for women not in a relationship. So they do bring their female caregiver. And um, it's a, a set agenda with a couple of variations um, if it's for couples and, uh, versus uh, female caregivers. And um, of anything I've ever created, I think this will truly be one of my legacies. I really think this will be one of my legacies. I've helped nine other cancer centers launch these and have created a, a program planning guide um, to, I hope, promote other breast centers to also do, uh, to do the same. Um, there's laughter, which is important. We need some laughter. I guess our T cells pumping. Um, so we definitely want some laughter happening at these. But there's 
There's also some very serious and profound sessions. Um, one session, we break the patient away from the person they brought with them. So the patient's in the room with me, their loved ones in the other room with a different co-facilitator. And I ask the same question for both groups to answer. Of everything that may lie ahead, what's your greatest fear? This is something they've thought about, but in most cases they have not been able to talk about. It, it's, it's just too scary. But in a safe retreat environment, and it's gotta be the right location, believe you me, it's gotta be the right place. So they feel safe there, no TVs, no radios, don't touch your cell phone kind of a place. Um, we hold ours at um, Bon Secours Spiritual Center in Marriottsville, Maryland. Um, and we've held all of them there. We've not changed our location. But <clears throat> what we hear women talk about, and it's been consistent for every single one, and I've now done 32 of these, 32 of these. Every single one, it's been the same. <clears throat> I'm frightened of pain and suffering and no way to fix it for me, which launches me into a discussion about palliative care. And they'll go, no, no, no. I don't want hospice yet. And that's a problem because people think that palliative care and hospice are joined. And the only way you can get palliative care is if you agree to hospice. Palliative care stands on its own. And as soon as someone's diagnosed with stage four disease, they should have a palliative care specialist on their team, even if they don't need them yet. These people are, you know, they will refer to themselves as symptom management specialists. I don't even call them palliative care specialists. I say this is your quality of life coach. He or she's either going to preserve your quality of life or restore your quality of life. And they try to do that without using opioids. They'll do nerve blocks or vertebroplasties. I consider them one of the, one of the most important people you could possibly have on your team. And, and so every single woman or man, because we've had a couple of them with stage four too, um, that's what they always say. Pain and suffering and no way to fix it. My, my family witnessing me suffering and no way to fix it. In the other room, they're saying, She's in terrible pain and she's suffering and I can't do anything about it. So they're talking about palliative care too. Second thing that she says, particularly if she's got young children and a lot of the ones that come to our retreat, very few Hopkins patients come to our Hopkins retreat. And I think it's because one-on-one -on -one we've been doing this with them. So, you know, these women travel in plane, train, automobile. Um, a lot of them are young. I say young as in early thirties and they've got toddlers or six-year-olds, you know, and they'll say, I'm afraid I'm going to be forgotten. I'm afraid I won't be here to instill my values in my children, that I won't be here to give motherly advice. I won't see my daughter walk down the aisle when she gets married. And I feel very angry about it. <clears throat> it used to be Years and years ago, I would have said, I'm so sorry. But I haven't said that for a long, long, long time. Instead, I'll say, we're going to develop alternative ways for you to fulfill these very significant milestone life goals. So <clears throat> we do card drives. 
um, get people to donate cards for different milestones that your children will experience. Maybe she'll be here and can hand her child that card, but maybe she won't be. And someone in her family will be the keeper of the cards. So <clears throat> uh, when you get your driver's license, when you uh, graduate from high school, when you graduate from college, when you get your first career job, um, when you get married, when you have your first baby, what do you want to tell your child on that day? And frankly, I think these women that have passed away and done these the hard process might be doing a better job rearing their children than we are who are here on this earth. Because these children don't throw these cards away. They read them and they do everything that is written in them. Um, some years back, I got a, a phone call from a young woman I'd never met. And she said, oh my gosh, she said, I didn't know your last name. I just knew your first name is Lily. She said, you took care of my mother <clears throat> when uh, she was dying of breast cancer. And she said, my mother died when I was 10. And she said, each time she'd come home from the hospital, my dad would recruit my Aunt Sarah, my mother's sister, to come over and help him take care of her. And I'd hear Aunt Sarah and my mom, my mom would say to Aunt Sarah, Lily said to do this and Lily said to do that, but I didn't know who you were, what you were telling my mom until she passed away and my Aunt Sarah became the keeper of my cars. She said, when I got my driver's license, she said, my mother had a card for me. She said, there I saw her blue handwriting, right? Which we've lost because everybody types and texts, which makes me nuts. I still want people to learn how to write in cursive and they're not. But she said, there's my mother's handwriting. And it said, please do not drive like your father. Please do drive like Aunt Sarah. She said, she just cut to the chase. Tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. She said, I wanted to find you. <clears throat> she said, I'm so glad that you're still at the Johns Hopkins Breast Center. She said, because three weeks ago I got married. And she said, as my Aunt Sarah helped me put my veil on, she handed me a card from my mother. She said, I opened the card. She said, the envelope edgings had yellowed because it was 14 years old. And she says, I took out the card. It was a beautiful wedding card, opened it up. There down the left-hand side, she said, my mother had written at the top, I know you would have chosen wisely who was deserving to have you spend the rest of your life with. In the middle, she wrote marital advice. Don't ever go to bed angry with one another. Whatever it is could be talked through. At the bottom, she wrote, when your dad lifts your veil and kisses your left cheek, you will feel me kiss your right. She said, Miss Lily, I swear to you, I felt my mother's kiss. I have always felt my mother's presence through these cards. She said, I asked Aunt Sarah if there are any more cards and she didn't answer me. So is this my last card? And I said, do you plan to have a family? She said, we hope to start a family in about a year and a half. I said, when you learn you're pregnant, there's a letter from your mom describing how she felt when she learned she was carrying you. <clears throat> when the baby's born, there's a letter from your mom uh, describing how she felt the first time she held you and all of her hopes and dreams for you. And when the baby is a toddler, there's a voice recording of your mother saying nursery rhymes and children's stories. So your children will know their grandmother too. And she said, that'll be perfect. So this card process works. And if anybody questions it, all they have to do is just 
hear that story and they'll know. And I've heard from other women that are grown now too and said, you have no idea how important these cards are. So when someone goes to a card store, like for a graduation card, those cards are seasonal. They're only in the store for May and June and then they're gone. So I tell people, pick up another card. You'll get one more. Uh, because otherwise it can be difficult when you're trying to find these cards um, to, to be able to do that. Um, <clears throat> we do surveys at the end uh, and surveys again, three months later uh, and a pre-survey as well. Uh, one of the questions is I am fearful for my future. Most women will score that very high. They're quite frightened about what lies ahead. Um, immediately after the retreat, while they're still there, they might score it, let's say, instead of being an eight or nine, now it's a four. Well, you really know how thing, how well the retreat went when you ask them again three months later, that this just wasn't a, a weekend and then it wore off, that this is, this is going to see them through. And so it's rare for someone to score themselves above a four three months later, if they're still alive. They're profound. And I'm particularly proud of, of Janie for having decided, I want to do this for our patients too. I want to take this on and I want to make this happen um, every year. So Janie, can you talk about, about, uh, about yours and the event that you do in the evening for the, for the couples in particular? And then I'll tell them what event we do that's so much fun. I want to follow up a little point about the cards and just love the stories. And we also do cards and, um, being here in Kansas City, we have been getting some uh, nice uh, donations from Paula, which has been nice. Um, so we've had that, and it's really been meaningful. But one gal, um, young gal in her 30s, um, had um, been diagnosed, and she had written a, um, a wedding card to her sister and just wanted to have that for her sister in case she passed. Well, the best part of that story is that guess what? She was still alive. So even though, you know, because sometimes patients, I know, Lily, you've experienced this, where they feel like, well, if I write those cards, am I hastening my own death? And it's, and it's not. It's like, you know, you may be there to give that person your card. I oh. have cards for my grandchildren. I hope I'm here, right? But I could be hit by a truck. And I've traveled the cancer diagnosis treatment road several times now. Um, so like my granddaughter just turned 14 earlier this month and it was a joy to put that card in her hand I had written quite some time ago um, but it's a way to have control isn't it you know I like control I you know and these women are in a land of no have having no control so whatever we can do to give them control this is one of those this is one of those ways right um, and such a such an easy thing to do the simplicity of a card and the impact it can have because of the words that that woman writes in it is amazing. One other point on cards and letters. I have a, a good friend whose mother many, many years ago died when she was like about 11 years old of breast cancer. So it's been back in the 50s or something like that, 60s. And she said, you know, and she starts crying. I mean, she's like 60 something now, 65. And she's like, she starts crying and she says, I'm still looking for the letter. And so that's the point of this. It's like, helping people leave that legacy. Um, so how that started here, let me just tell a little bit about that because I think it's important. Um, so Ms. Lilly had uh, presented these, about these retreats at a couple of different conferences I had been to. 
and has some videos and things. And I just, uh, there's not a dry eye, obviously, when she shows the video and people talking about their experience at the retreats. And so we, um, you know, so I just have taken that all in. And then um, here at our center in St. Luke's, we have um, our oncologist, um, Dr. Timothy Pluar. He started a, um, he had a vision for many, many years to have a center dedicated to just metastatic breast cancer. It was really a, another subset of breast cancer treatment in and of itself. And even more so today, as Kira is we're preparing for this symposium, breast cancer because of all of the advances in the last five years. I mean, imagine it, Lily, from when you started the retreats until now, how many more options there are for people? Yeah. And yet there's still not a cure, but it is really, um, it has become more of a long-term, more of a chronic condition. Mm-hmm. And so- for 70%, it will be a chronic illness and they can live a decade or two decades with okay. like CDK, Four six inhibitors have just turned turned the treatment world around. Such a paradigm shift. The 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 things that are for HER2 positive that are now being extrapolated even into patients with HER2 low. I mean, there's a lot of things that are happening in the last six months, and so that's a wonderful blessing. But it can also be an opportunity for patients to want to put that off and not believe that this. This diagnosis still can not, res- you know, can result in their death on a sooner, you know, and um, you know, sooner than it would have been. And so it's um such an important, as you know, it's such an important thing that we're doing with this. And so anyway, Dr. Plour, in to make a very long story short, he was starting this center. It was started in 2016, and right when it started, um, it was exactly the time that the notebook came out. There was uh, Lily's content was put into a wonderful uh, retreat with a kit, uh, if you will, and had a lot of the resources. She just gave everything, uh, put it all together, and it was uh, provided to us. And Dr. Plourd called me into his office, and he he said, I have something for you. When you start the center, when you start the Kunt Center, which is called the Kunt Center, K-O-O-N-T-Z, the Kunt Center for advanced breast cancer, when you start that, we need to do these retreats. I've seen these and I told him about it, you know, probably a couple of years even before. So he had the notebook that had been brought to him by someone and he had it handed it to me. He says, here it is. I want you to do this. Yeah. And I said, Twilight? Yes. A thousand times. Yes. And so that began the process. And it took really a a full year to plan the first one, even with that, because the most important part is getting the place. Mm-hmm. Got to have the right setting. Oh, huge, huge. You said it, and I, you know, I, I totally agree. And I did, I, I try. I looked around, visited a few places and ended up, it was the, it's the best place. Uh, it's called Circle S Ranch. It's in Lawrence, Kansas. And it's just far enough away from Kansas City area that, um, you know, people, have to drive about an hour so they can't say oh well, i've got to get to my kids soccer game or you know i mean the expectation is you come and you're staying for the weekend from friday night till sunday and i'm very passionate about that timeline big um uh, lily and i know uh, you know sometimes people try to shortcut it and say well we'll do a one-day thing because the resources for this as providers i can tell you um somebody said to me at the beginning of our administration now this isn't going to use very many resources i said is it? And I said, oh, 
Yes, it is going to use a lot of resources and not just the financial resources because we've been so wonderfully blessed by the National Breast Cancer Foundation to help us with these retreats through the grants that they provide. But it's people resources. Um, it does take that and it's taking, building that team and building that. Um, uh, we have a multidisciplinary team uh, that we work with. And so I started planning the retreats. Long and short was that following fall of 2017, we were able to have our first couples retreat. And then the next year we started doing the two. So um, actually our couples, are, we did our couples retreat this past August, November 4th and 5th, uh, 6th is our singles retreat with uh, where they come with a caregiver. And it's really a, a very different dynamic. I know, um, you know, this was something uh, Lily, I've heard her speak about and the experience with the couples and the caregivers is so very, very different. Yes. But, uh, One of the things that is very different between couples coming and you say the singles coming, bringing a female caregiver <clears throat> with the couples, the husband and wife are very honest with one another. And I frankly think it ties back to their marriage vows. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the single patient who's bringing her mother, her sister, her daughter, maybe her best friend, whoever is that's the primary person taking care of her, she's not always honest. And, and when questioned, you know, she'll say, I've been such a burden already to my sister or to my daughter or to my mother. Uh, I went to my last appointment alone because I knew I was going to get bad news and I'll decide when I want to share that news and I'm not ready to share it yet. And uh, that, that's not good because you don't want the person who's trying to take care of you to be in the dark about what's going on um, or to be shocked uh, later that, that we need them to commit to one another. I actually have them write a letter to one another um, at the retreat that they will always be honest. They will always commit to one another to be honest and that um, trying to protect her uh, is not a good idea. Stop looking at yourself as a burden. What are the things that your loved one who's come with you says are the are the pearls that have come out of going on this journey with you? There's some there's some good things that have happened. So let's focus, you know, on 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 them. And the other is honesty from their provider. Uh, not all physicians are comfortable giving bad news. If they're not comfortable giving bad news and they don't do it well, I'm not sure they should be taking care of stage four breast cancer patients. Maybe they should specialize in earlier stage um, because you've got to be able to give bad news uh, and you can't fluff it up and flower it. I mean, I don't want you to look like, you know, the angel of death, but honesty has been through clinical research proven to be the number one thing that a patient expects from their doctor honesty. We had a, we had a gal attend our uh, retreat where she brought her mother with her. her. Mother was in a wheelchair. So you got a 30 something year old with stage four breast cancer, triple negative, And she had a three-year-old and her mother is in a wheelchair with MS and they're trying to take care of one another. But the patient had a three-year-old daughter and no husband and no siblings. And she was getting treatment in Virginia. And she said, 
that she had asked her doctor at her last visit, which was just a few days prior to the retreat, how many more treatment options do I have left? I'm on seventh line of therapy, which is a lot. And she said, my last treatment, I only got through three months when you had to switch me to this new treatment. And her doctor said back to her, we don't have to talk about that today. And she went, oh, okay. I said, but you wanted to talk about it. She said, yes. She said, my mother can't raise my three-year-old. I've got to find someone I can trust to be a guardian or adopt my three-year-old daughter. And I said, so Monday you're going to call his office and you're going to say, I'm going to see you this week and we're going to pick up where we left off because I have to know I need a timeline. <clears throat> she called me. She saw him on Monday. She called me on Tuesday crying. She said, he told me this is my last treatment. I thought that was horrific. And it was because he wasn't comfortable talking about it. She was ready to talk about it. She needed to talk about it. Well, maybe the matter, though, he didn't even know she had a three-year-old. I thought, where did patient-centered care go? Why doesn't he know you have a three-year-old and a mother with MS? So we need providers to be honest. When somebody asks you for a timeline, none of us are God, but you've got a pretty good idea. You really do. Um, that you can give a window. Uh, because they need time to plan. They need time to get their affairs in order. Um there are nine elements needed to experience a good and peaceful death. You need to know your purpose for living, and it was valued by at least one other person. You need to leave a legacy unrelated to leaving money for something. So it isn't like you need to leave money for your name to be on a building. could be a philosophy. Um, one of my legacies will be these retreats, for example. <clears throat> Giving forgiveness and receiving forgiveness, which doesn't mean you forgive everybody that you feel has done you wrong, but you need to think about it and you need to have a discussion about it. Having all legal and financial affairs in order, less than half of people with metastatic breast cancer have done that before they die. And let me tell you, it's a nightmare for the family if those things aren't in place. And the doctor doesn't know because he never sees a family again. <clears throat> Leaving no financial debt for your family associated with your cancer treatment. We do that very poorly in the United States. Drugs and co-pays are horrifically expensive. And adult children will say, mom, don't worry about it. You know, my brother and I'll take care of it. Did she ask her brother? No. Now the mother dies and she says, oh, by the way, you and I are gonna take care of whatever the bills are left. And he says, I didn't agree to that. And then the daughter says, by the way, since you make twice as much money as I do, I'm gonna prorate this so I'll pay a third and you pay the other two thirds. And now they aren't speaking again. <clears throat> Being pain-free, which is doable with effective palliative care. Very effective. Feeling connected spiritually to a higher power, which for some may not happen until the nth hour. <clears throat> and finally, feeling confident you will be spoken of fondly after you're gone. That's really important to people. They know you're gonna say nice things about them while they're here. They want to know what you're going to say after they're gone. So <clears throat> I review all of those nine things now with them and give it to them as a printout um, and say, you know, this is your homework. I have completed my nine. So I know I'm, I'm in control. 
Um, I want you to complete your nine. I want your husband to complete his nine. I want your female caregiver to complete her nine. You don't have to be actively dying in order to do this. You really should have it done way ahead of time. And it's a wonderful conversation to have with people. I mean, it, it, it really is. It's a, uh, it's so thoughtful and really makes you think about your relationships, what's important to you and what isn't, um, is, is, is what we should be doing for these folks. So Janie, what do you do on, uh, on Saturday night with the couples? So when we started the retreat and we took the, um, the kit, you know, I said, yeah, I, I joke, you, uh, you add water and a retreat pops out. Well, that didn't happen. I tried it. Didn't happen. So, uh, so it was a lot of work. But um, one of the things we wanted to do, so we, we really followed the retreat curriculum. And we just tried to really do that as the, you know, out of the gate so that we were, um, you know, really looking at the way they should be done. And um, so we ended up um, doing some research with that. I asked Lily, I said, have you actually done formal research? And she says, no, so do it. So we did. And um, we had our psychology team and we, uh, we did that. And I want to come back to the research findings because we did that. Uh, it was a very, I think, a very wonderful uh, retreat design. But we started following the, cur uh, the curriculum and started, uh, so I was lining people up. We have a multidisciplinary team that does our retreats. Uh, so it's nursing, uh, myself, and then we have uh, had other nurses come and trying, you know, always trying to um, get others to come in, have them catch this vision um, so that, you know, just because somebody leaves an organization or is gone or retires or dies or something that these things can go on. And so again, legacy, I think this is also part of my legacy, the things we've done here and the way we've um, implemented these. So I think we were the first ones to implement these um, after the kits came out. And, mm -hmm. right. and because we wanted to do the research as well. And so one of the things, and Lily alluded to this, but um, the, the morning sessions um, on Saturday, um, I start with on Friday night, we do a thing on the power of story and um, I, use, I do that. And then on Saturday, our psych we have our psychologists uh, that work just with our oncology patients. They're there as well as myself. And um, uh, we've had a chaplain that's helped with that and social workers and others. And we also, you know, um, divide them out into um, to the two, like, so the patients separate from the caregivers or spouses and the 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 just the work that they do is just amazing uh, as they bring up all the topics related to you know the fear and what they're dealing with um just at our one of our recent retreats a husband and i was actually this time in the care in the spouses group which is always fun because you go to both you know and i said um and he said i I'm about ready to implode. I have put my whole career, I'm not advancing in my career because I have to keep the insurance. And he had never even talked to her about this. And it's like, these are the things that can happen that are so, um, you know, really these, these things that come up can be really um, heavy. And so that you go through the morning and then we have lunch. And then after lunch, there's a, a time where they come back together to discuss these things and a lot of things come up end of life that that's one big one it can be other things with um kids and how you know things are the dynamics that are happening in the family and i mean there is this the you know the list is endless sexuality 
uh, comes up. At our last wedding with the couples, uh, people brought this up. The women were bringing it up about sexuality. And um, our nurse, our nurse clinician, Dr. Plurich's nurse was there uh, with that group. And they came up with a, really, you're going to love this. They came up with a signal because, doctor, you know, the doctors are willing to talk about this. Our doctor is very willing. But the patient kind of has to, you know, bring it up. And, you know, you see these, these patients, you know, weekly or monthly or sometimes more than once a week. Anyway, so the, the cue is, is that if they want our nurse to bring it up, they give her a little wink, wink. So it's a <laughs> wink. And so that's been really, those are the things that come out of retreats. But the thing is, once you're done with that, you know, it's kind of heavy. The Saturday content and the things that they're bringing up. While it's freeing and all that, it can be difficult. It's emotional. Uh, there's all kinds of things with that. And so then they have massages, and we have a wonderful gal that comes and does this yummy restorative yoga. It's just so relaxing. So they have that day. And then you do the evening activities. Well, I, I had been involved with a group in Nashville several years ago. It was a young survivor's retreat, not metastatic, but it was it was fantastic and they had, had me come and be, be their nurse and it was that's how this idea came about but I didn't know it was um it was an idea of you know this uh, a special event where they can dress up and um so I was literally it was one of those thing, things that came to my mind at 2 a.m you know how this is you sit straight up in bed and you're like I've got it beyond the sea prom and it's beyond the sea the cancer sea the big sea and we don't just do it for the couples, really. We do it for the singles, too. So that I tell them, you can dress up as much as you want, and there's no such thing as too dressy. You can't, and I don't care if you come in your, you know, your jogging pants, but you can wear a cocktail dress. You can wear the dress you had in the back of the closet that you wore to your, kid, your daughter's wedding. This is the time to pull it out and wear it again. Because to be at the retreats, they have to be well enough to be there. And so they really get, you know, kind of dressed up. Um, it's a wonderful time. And I will tell you, more than once it has happened that that was really the last really good picture. And they looked healthy. And we have some fun with it. We have a, our whole theme is the sea. We kind of like the ocean and things is very beautiful there's just all kinds of things to it that's a whole nother topic um when we first started the first one i had a gal that was one of our, our cardiologist's wife and she took on on the task of designing all of the decorations for us and i said i want you to i budgeted the money for it in the retreat budget i said you know stuff that will last that we can use over and over and it's just really beautiful the way they do it and then we have a wall where we have these um, like a fishnet and all this stuff. And then they have funny little props that they can do. So we do some serious and some fun pictures. And I have been asked for those pictures from those retreats for funerals many, many times. And I provide them to them. And then we also have a photographer that comes every time. And then also video takes a lot and does a whole videography um, session, you know, uh, session with them, has interviewed lots of patients. And we do that at every retreat. And it's something that's so worth the money. I would love to share one of those sometimes even um, with folks. But the Beyond the Sea retreat is so much fun. And I tell you, when it's with the couples, it's the one moment in particular, you know, sometimes it's, these are really emotional for us as caregivers. But man, I'll tell you what, when I'm standing there and watching the couples dance, knowing what's at stake 
And many of them have been so focused on the cancer for so long that they haven't had any fun. You know, they're just not, you know, the connection. And you see them connecting, and I have them send me their their special song. And so we play that, and they get out there, and they dance, and you just can't help but stand there, and just the tears will roll, because it's just so sweet and so special. And so then, you know, we do the singles. Well, it's a lot of work sometimes to get them out there dancing. Now, I have them send me their songs, too, and they, they're more reluctant. I don't say your special song, just songs you like. Um, and so there's various ones. And, you know, maybe they sing in, like, Amazing Grace. And like, well, that's great. We play that during dinner. We have a special dinner that night. But that's not exactly dance music. So um, the very first time that we had the singles, one of the, two or three of the girls came together to me, and they said, you know, we're really concerned about this prom thing like who are, who are we going to dance with and I said well you know what I don't need a man to dance with me I don't follow anybody and so no worries we're going to have fun so I'm out there trying to engage them and get the get them out on the dance floor and they were all so reluctant no 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 but once I got them started couldn't get them stopped and then That's they're Songs and I'm adding it to the play, you know, the play, pulling them up and playing them. And oh my gosh, they had so, so much fun. And it's just, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's it just lightens that mood after that heavy day. And they connect with one another as well. And so it, it's, it's really special. Then we do afterwards, after the dancing and the dinner, then we um, do the, um, the almost newlywed game. And then uh, something different for the singles, we've done various versions of that where it's kind of we call it the friendship game and I know you've done some other things with that um but really special times that lighten the lighten the mood and yeah. help kind of have you know fun too. So I, I love doing the the what we call the almost newlywed game and we use the questions from that game that was on in the 70s and the questions you could print off of the internet. We buy um awards from the Dollar Tree store. So we've got big baskets of things and they get to select them, um, which is fun. And I'll ask them after we're done, um, what did you learn from doing the newlywed game? And the same answer is always the same is, uh, I don't know very much about my spouse or my spouse doesn't know very much about me or you know something to that effect. And I'll say anything else that you came away with from the newlywed game and you know, they'll say it felt good to laugh. I haven't laughed in a long time. And I'll say for two hours, nobody had cancer in this room. You can escape this whenever you need to, whether it be going to a movie in a theater or doing something else. But you don't have to have cancer on your brain and in your life every minute of your day and night. And this is a way to get away from that. For hours who come that are <clears throat> single, and bring their female caregiver, we have them create and paint masks, these paper mache masks that start off being beige in color. Um, we set up a table that's got paint and words they can put on there, you know, hope and other words, um, flowers, cloth flowers and sequins and all kinds of decorations. And I'll say, I want you to decorate the outside of your mask, how you want the world to perceive you. 
the inside of the mask, how do you perceive yourself? Boy, does that tell you bunches of bunches. And I have the female caregivers do this also. <clears throat> One woman that came, young woman, came um, with her girlfriend. When she arrived at the retreat center, she had on a pink hat, dyed her hair pink, pink shirt, pink pants, pink socks, pink shoes, lots of pink jewelry. And usually women with stage four disease don't like pink. They'll say, I'm the other pink. Mm -hmm. And so people, the, the other patients were put off by her, seeing her like, you know, Pollyanna and all happy and fun wearing pink. Um, and she was bubbly and she said, you know, things are going well and my cancer has spread to my liver, but, you know, I'm, you know, fighting each day. And, and you know, they would look at her and just kind of like, I thought, oh, dear. <clears throat> when we got to the making the masks, that outside of the mask was all pink, pink flowers on it, you know, words, survive and all that, you know, hope, all this. The inside she painted totally black. And I said, tell me about your mask. And she said, I want people to be with me and around me. And if they see me and I don't look well that day and I was in my regular clothes, maybe they won't ask me to go with the group to dinner or go to a movie or come over to my house and sit and talk with me. So I try to look a whole lot better than I feel. And I try to be upbeat and perky because that's what they will accept. But to me, the only thing left of me is my cancer. Good grief. So the other patients went to their rooms, told her to stay put in the big room we were in and brought her some of their clothing a different shirt, a different pair of pants, different socks. Somebody brought her a pair of sneakers that was one size too big. Different hat, which actually she could cover up all of her hair in without seeing that pink hat. And the message that these ladies gave her was, just be yourself. You are a valuable person. And if your friends don't want to be around you because you have stage four breast cancer, you need to get different friends. They're not your friends. That was quite a profound experience for all of us. Um, but it taught me a lot about how people may be disguising themselves to act and try to feel better than they really are. Uh, her girlfriend was stunned, absolutely stunned and in tears that this is what this patient had been doing all this time. Yeah. Mm. And I can tell you that even with the number that we've done, there are hundreds of, you know, I'm always looking for the big win. Uh, like what's, you know, what, what was the win of this retreat with different people? But, you know, one of the things I want to kind of come back to is the, the research that we did because it was a really well-designed study that looked at, it's very rare that there's any information, information out there about the effect on the spouse or the caregiver. And we did it with both the singles and the couples. So of course that's a very different, um, you know, dynamic, but they all had the experience of the retreat. 
And so we, there was a combination of three tools that we used. One of them was on, you know, quality of life measures. And then one was on um, emotional intimacy and the other was on gratitude. And it was a very interesting study design. And so what we did is we had a, uh, on Friday evening when the, the participants would arrive, we had a research assistant. She was very, you know, very detailed and did everything right and everything was locked. I mean, it was it was a real true, I mean, we went through the IRB process. It was a study that we did and they, um, she would administer this tool at the beginning of the retreat. So to both the patient and the, the person that was with them, either the spouse or caregiver. And then um, at the end of the retreat on the last day, on Sunday afternoon, they would do it again right after lunch. We would have them do that, that survey. Uh, or the, the tool. And then they would send it out about six weeks after the retreat. And what really emerged after, um, I think we had about 100 people that were part of the study, was that there was an increase, a significant increase in gratitude, some slight increases in the emotional intimacy, and also in quality of life. And it's just a very interesting study. And then we, um, so that really kind of wrapped up. But we had also started a program called The Last Chapter Book. There's a, a it's a, it's a notebook. And um, because of the pandemic and so forth, our uh, psychologist did this. And it's a virtual um, four-week thing. And so we had some groups that were doing it, that had been to the retreat together. Because by this time, and I know Lily's ex had this experience as well. At the retreat, they all share all of their contact information. Every single group has set up a Facebook page, uh, their private Facebook group. And um, so they're staying connected. They're having dinner together. Um, they've gone to the funerals and memorial services for the people yes. that were at the retreat. They They'll even travel a long distance to do that for one another. Yes. It's incredible. <clears throat> and so um, some of those have participated with the people from their group, from their uh, retreat group. And it was very interesting that some of the ones that had participated in this last chapter group, it was about two years after the retreat that they attended. Very fascinating. They did a quality of life um, just questionnaire, and the same uh, research assistant was helping us. And identified three additional measures that were not part of the original study. Hmm. And significant because what they were saying by that time, two years later, uh, was that the retreat changed their lives, changed or improved their marriage, and gave them a new unique sense of purpose. That did not, those were not things that emerged uh, even at the six-week mark. And it's so amazing. And that comes out of, I think, the relationships that were built. And they continue to support and really love one another and um, just there for one another. And just, I mean, that just is so important. And then they still include the spouses or the caregivers when they get together and that person has passed. They still include them and they come and have breakfast together and they, right. you know, just that. <clears throat> They've become a family. Yes. Um, in yes. such a short period of time. You know, some people have said to me, well, how much can you accomplish in a weekend? I'll say, you don't oh. underestimate what is accomplished in a weekend. Because yes. these are also long days too. It isn't like a seminar of you arrive at 10, you leave at four or something. 
that this this and and I think what happens in in their sleeping rooms, which we don't know about, and I I will ask at breakfast, did you continue to talk about this subject after you got to your rooms? And they do, and um, and they do talk about sexuality and intimacy when they're in their you know in their private rooms, uh, getting ready to sleep or laying in bed beside one another about to go to sleep. And uh, <clears throat> one woman said to me, you opened the door for us, but we were able to really talk about it because we didn't have to give one another eye contact since the room was dark in our sleeping room. Yeah. How about that? We didn't have to look at one another eye to eye and have that conversation. We could lay there holding hands and speak in the dark about what we're worrying about. And I was like, that is very interesting um, uh, that that hadn't, you know, I hadn't thought about that before, but it's like the, it's like the retreat is 24 seven without us requiring that it be uh, uh, 20, 24 seven. The things you can accomplish because it's not just from 10 to four or whatever, it's all day. But you know, like on Friday evening, we have a bonfire and after our evening session. And so it's, you know, um, a bonfire, they, they can roast marshmallows and all sit on the fire. And people are just sharing and they're just sharing what they do, their lives. And um, one lady told this younger, really young patient, you know, that was putting things off, like, you know, cause well, we need this for the house, whatever, go to the beach. And I actually have an article that was in the um, patient at the Conqueror uh, where I interviewed that patient and it was called go to the beach but you know I want to you know there, there's just that that relationship at the meals and they're getting to know each other so they are also giving each other therapy yeah as, well, as in the connection yeah, networking good. because they haven't had necessarily that opportunity to talk to others that are in that yeah. same boat with shark infested waters around them um, and the spouses or partners have definitely not had that opportunity. So just getting to talk to another husband or another partner uh, is really what draws men to come with their wives, I think, because they, they, they want to have that experience with another, uh, with another spouse to make sure that what they're thinking is what others are thinking. And it is, you know, what they're worried about is what everybody's worried about. And I think that's one of the catalysts for them to remain on this closed Facebook until there's just one person left. You know, it has always impressed me that they have gone to one another's funerals. Uh, and I personally think that's part of a prep for themselves and for their, for their loved ones to be able to do that. One of the husbands contacted me after his wife died. He lived, they lived in the Midwest and he said, I'm going to be traveling to the spiritual center and I would like you to meet me there. You tell me what day in the next three weeks I, I could meet you there. So I, you know, we set up a date and he came on a motorcycle and, and um, he said, she asked me to spread, her, she was cremated, asked me to spread her ashes on the labyrinth. We have a stone labyrinth there that we do a walking exercise on. And he says, in every group that comes after um, she wants you to tell them that she is walking with them. Well, that's pretty profound. I want your ashes to be spread where you attended a retreat, but it is so meaningful yes. to these patients when I tell them 
this woman's ashes are spread here. She is walking with you. Um, that they're just so touched by that. They're so moved by that. And it wasn't like, you know, he was traveling 10 minutes to do it. He, he came 1500 miles to do it, but that's where she wanted her ashes. And I was like, boy, that's profound. It's really yeah. profound. Another thing we do at the end, I just want to mention this because, um, you know, there's things that we just added little things. And this is one of the things at the end, we all, everybody gets a little key. It's like a little skeleton key. And I start the key and I have the key in my hand. And then the first person will share, it's going to be the key for that person. So I hand it to the person that it's there, it's going to be their key. And they are to tell their key takeaways from the weekend. And this actually acts as a timer too, because as they tell what it is, they pass it to the next person and the next person and the next person um, around the circle until it gets back to them. And they are telling the keys and everyone who touches that key, you know, it's like that's kind of that symbolic, um, our lives have all been bonded together and touched together and everybody's touched their key and they hang on to those. And people just love that. And it's, you know, it's really that wrap up time to say, this is the keys we're taking away. And um, so that's one other little, little thing that we do as well. So, so I, I started six years ago having one of our uh, metastatic breast cancer patients uh, from Hopkins who um, uh, she's now been living with stage four for 11 Year she's ER positive for two negative on a CDK four six inhibitor, so she's really and and her last two years her scans have been NED no evidence of disease, which is you know so I told her I said you need a T-shirt that says I'm sleeping with Ned I'm in love with Ned I hope I always have Ned. Um, <clears throat> we get donated pewter tokens that have words on them, and on the other side we'll have an image of something, so they might say. Um, hope or they might say love or they might say uh, strength or some word. And so <clears throat> over the three days, she's kind of been sizing up each person as to what would be the right token to give them and presents them with the one that she thinks speaks to them, speaks about them um, for for the patient and for the person that, that accompanied the patient. And that's been... Um, that's been a, a nice exercise to do at, at, at the closing. You mentioned about National Breast Cancer Foundation, and I want to bring them up again. Um, they are funding quite a few of these retreats across the country. So if anyone is interested in more information or launching their first or second or third retreat, um, uh, they can contact uh, NBCF.org and uh, see the grant uh, submission box. It's not a complicated grant to write, thank you, God. Um, they tried to make this as easy as possible in order to provide the funding to, to hold these. They have historically always funded the retreat for us, that's for the patient bringing their female caregiver. And then I have philanthropic donors that fund the couple's uh, retreat. It is important that these be free to attend. Uh, patients have to provide their own transportation but once they're there, everything is free. And uh, uh, it's immeasurable, the impact. Um, there's so many things that we will never know got discussed because they were still discussing it when they drove home. It's still discussing it six months later if, if the patient's still alive. So, um, so yeah, so that's, 
it's uh it's it, it's pretty pretty profound so we want to be honest with our patients always 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 <clears throat> we want to let them know how many more treatment options are available and what's the likelihood that these treatment options are going to buy them more time um while also preserving their quality of life you know i look at a i look at a graph I'm hearing a presentation, particularly if it's on a new drug. You know, oh, we got this new drug. We're going to be offering this now, stage four patients. And they'll show, you know, here's the line on the graph uh, of uh, how much longer this person lived by taking this drug um, versus those that weren't on the drug. And, you know, I'm the one that puts her hand up and annoys the speaker and say, what was she doing during those extra three months? Was she in bed? Was she in pain? What was her quality of life? Because if she didn't have quality of life, then you're telling me you forced her to exist for three more months. We need to focus on what the patient's life goals are. What are her goals of care? Um, all too often, patients will agree to treatment to please their doctor. 23% of patients with cancer die in the ICU on a ventilator because there was no discussion about planning for end of life. And that's a crime. That just should not be. It's a horrible way to see somebody die. It's a horrible way to die. So if, if individuals listening to this say, no, I don't have good skills when it comes to, to giving bad news, <clears throat> There's some courses online they can take. Um, I regularly do presentations on the art and science of giving bad news. <clears throat> and we owe it to our patients. If we're going to take care of patients with stage four disease, we owe it to the patients to take good care of them. And that means listening to them, answering their hard questions honestly, and uh, have them experience a good and peaceful death rather than saying, I'm so sorry I couldn't save you. We knew from the start we couldn't save them. One day we will be able to save them. But until we're there, uh, let's provide them the very best care, which may not be treatment. Um, let them decide when they want to stop treatment rather than us constantly offering another treatment. Don't just treat the disease. Take care of your patient. You know, as a follow-up to that, though, I do want to give a little plug for the symposium on uh, November the 12th because there are a lot of treatments that are out there. And the one thing that I think is really awesome about many of the new treatments, the novel therapies that we're seeing come out, they are really <clears throat> horrible for patients. Um, they re and, and managing the, the side effects of that is up to us as clinicians to help them, to have that communication with the patient, to engage the patient, to get, you know, to know what the patient's goals are. So that's an absolutely essential point. Patients have to, um, have to know what do they ha have coming up? What's their plans? What are they, you know, what are they living for? What, what is it that if I can't do X, Y, Z, that I will have no quality of life? And, you know, I think it's, it's really important to know that. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a definitely a, a point of this, this symposium and the group is presenting these novel therapies. Um, I'm, I am um, 
personally doing PARP inhibitors and PIK3CA um, cancer uh, inhibitors. And so those are, um, you know, there's others doing um, some of the other novel therapies. And I think it's going to be a really great conference. And so if you um, have not heard about it, I'm sure Tara or one of the team from I3 Health can help uh, get you the information because um, I think it really does speak to the um, new things that are out there are available and patients can have quality of life. And I think that's the important piece that many of the ones, especially uh, there's oral ones, there's others that are IV treatments, but still working around what the patient's goals are, their trips, being able to, you know, it may mean that if they're on an oral CDK46 inhibitor or uh, something like a uh, PI3K inhibitor, that's an oral medication that when they take that trip, you may have to see if you can get that filled someplace else, you know, so that they, they get their medicine on time. And, you know, there's a lot of the logistics that take extra time, but are so worth it. And, um, you know, that they can continue to live life, that they're not being yes. controlled by the cancer, that they can have quality of life and meet the goals that are so important yeah. to them. Give them a drug holiday, their daughter's getting married, or give them a drug holiday, they have a 25th anniversary to celebrate. Uh, uh, we want them to still enjoy living. Yes. <clears throat> and as I said, not just existing. We yeah. we want them we want them to still have uh, joy yes, um, in their life. Life's not worth living if it, if we don't have joy. Absolutely. Well, I think that the, the symposium will give caregivers a lot of good information that will help with some of that quality of life issue and um, helping engage patients into the shared decision-making that we have to have with mm -hmm. patients and their families um, yep. with medical breast cancer. <laughs> well, this has been a really fantastic conversation. I can't thank you both enough. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments, all found at oncdata.com.